Thank you, Dave. Good morning, everybody. Um, I'm Mike, as has been said. I'm involved in some of the leadership aspects of the church today. Um, and I'm really quite excited and kind of slightly tingly in anticipation of what I feel God's been putting in my heart to talk about today. Um, and the main subject is one that will make you go, ooh, really? It's judgment. I'm going to be talking about uh, God as a judge, and I'm going to lead through to Judgment Day. The Bible talks about that day, the day of judgment, which makes people go, a little bit. Um, and uh, I'm going to be using Isaiah chapter 10 for that a little bit later on. So, let's go. We all judge. But why do we find it nicer to say we all use our judgment? I'll be talking about that a bit later on. Because we don't like the idea of being judging, do we, really? You're probably thinking, even now as I'm talking about past judgments that you've made. Some good, some bad. The best judgment I ever made was asking my wife to marry me all those years ago. And uh, you know, maybe hers the other way was one of the best ones as well. Uh, another judgment that I make that I'm pretty proud of is these yellow laces. Don't they go with these red shoes? Yeah, yeah, thank you very much. You might argue with that one. Uh, you're probably thinking about judgments you made in the past. Those trousers that you wore when you were a lot younger that you thought were the bee's knees, or they were amazing, but now you think, hmm, don't think I'd wear those now. Get those flares out again. Or that top you wore. I had a shirt with flowers on it once. That was all the rage back in the day when I was young, and a, and a big kipper tie. Wouldn't wear that now. You're probably thinking of things that you've done in the past that are slightly dodgy. And what about things like driving? My driving, when I was 20, when I just bought my first car, I used half my army uniform allowance to buy it, so it wasn't that special, really. But I could judge a gap to a millimeter and get through it. I was an amazing judge of gaps in my car. But I wasn't very good at judging when to go through narrow gaps. It probably wasn't a good idea, really. So, But my judgments changed over the years happily. And you're probably thinking, my judgments have changed over the years, too. Well, we're going to be looking at God as a judge. Um, and leading up to the final judgment day, as I said. And I want to present another word to you, which is uh, another one that might make you go judgmental. It's not a nice thing to be accused of. Has anybody been accused of being a judgmental? I was recently by a member of my family uh, who said I'm, I was being judgmental about something that another member of the family had done. And it was being a bad witness. And uh, it was really difficult to be confronted with that possibility. Not very nice. And uh, you're probably thinking of a verse that the Bible has in it. It says, do not judge, or you too will be judged. But actually, let me tell you, that, judge, that judgment that you make there is referred to as a judgment doing the same thing that you're judging someone else for doing. You'll be judged if you judge somebody for doing something that you do, and you're kind of deflecting onto them your own bad, bad behavior. It's not saying don't judge. 
God wants us to be able to be wise and understand what's right and wrong and call it out. Judgmental suggests a critical spirit or a critical attitude or a critical heart towards people, and God doesn't like that. But we must call out sin when we see it in people in the church and in society. It's not good enough to say, no, I'm not supposed to be judgmental. We have to call out sin. Matthew 18, 15 talks about that. I'm not going to, I'm actually sort of in a hurry today because I've got to get somewhere where I really want to get to, to put something before you that will challenge and cause discussion. So I'm going to move quite quickly today. I'm sorry about that. Uh, so I'm not going to delay on Matt 18, Matthew 18. Um, we are called also to admonish one another. That means say, what you're doing isn't right, you know. You could do better. The way you did that, the way you held, um, had that relationship or that conversation with somebody wasn't right. And we are called in this place, God's people, to encourage and teach and admonish and direct and help each other to be um, better before God for his glory. You agree? Sometimes uncomfortable, but we have to confront one another sometimes, now and again. We have to right the wrongs in society and speak up for the, the downtrodden. God was particularly keen for support for widows and orphans throughout the Old Testament and the New Testament as well. But our main aim in this is to honor God and to seek his glory and to do it with humility, knowing that we are probably just as bad in other ways as anybody that we're confronting. So that's dealt with judgmental, but that's quite a big discussion. And you could talk about it afterwards, perhaps, with each other, with me. In fact, anything you want to talk about afterwards with me, I'll be really happy to, about anything that I present to you today. So one more thing before I move on to Isaiah chapter 10, which is the main text for today, and it's about wisdom. We need wisdom. Uh, and there is a brilliant book that I just want to bring to your attention. I've mentioned it before, but it's a book that you might have read or seen. It's called Knowing God by a guy called J.I. Packer, who is one of the great fathers of the church in these last, this last century. It's packed with amazing stuff, helping you to, to know about God and get to know him personally. And he talks about wisdom, and he says it like this. And I'm going to read it once as he said it, and then just said it in a different way. Wisdom is the power to see and the inclination to choose the best and highest goal in a situation together with the means for achieving it. So it is the ability to see what is needed to get to the best goal in a situation and to know how to get there and to want to do it. It's quite a lot, isn't it? So you see what needs to be done, you figure out how to do it, and you want to do it. That's real wisdom. And it's the best thing that could be done in a situation we need it so much, and God has it in abundance. Infinitely, infinitely, I mean, <laughs> in abundance. He is all wise. 
So let's have a look at God in action. And to set the scene or to help you to uh, sort of focus on Isaiah as a, an Old Testament prophet, I'm going to put on my Old Testament, Testament poncho. I actually wear this every day because I've got a, a chair up in my loft that's not heated and I read my Bible up there. Uh, Nicholas says I could put the heater on, but I quite like it. <laughs> so so I, I wear this. So here is me reading out from Isaiah. Uh, I'm not going to read the whole of Isaiah chapter 10. And if you haven't got a Bible and you'd like one, there aren't any more on the tables there, but there are one or two more uh, actually on the back, I think, or out outside. Oh, there they are over there. Yeah, so they're there for you to get them. And I'm going to read from page 695 in the Church Bibles, so I'll give you a moment to turn to it. Um, but I will set the scene, actually. Now, this um, is God speaking out his long-term plan throughout the book of Isaiah, which has got 66 chapters. And God's long-term plan, just to set the scene, that he gave to Abraham was a promise that he would bless all nations through him and his family, and that one day a Messiah would come from Ab Abraham's line who would save the world and then would come back to judge the world and then would come and live with his people at the end on that day. And that's what Isaiah talks about all the way through. Uh, and it talks about Judah, which is um, the small part of old Israel that was 12 tribes, which is just two tribes of Judah and Benjamin. Uh, you, you might have read about how uh, there was disagreement between the tribes, and there was Israel that lived in the north of the land that had 10 tribes, and there was Judah in the south. And this is Isaiah prophesying to Judah, the two tribes in the south who had their capital, Jerusalem on Mount Zion. And Isaiah is talking about um, a threat and disciplining to them because they behave so badly, but a promise that God will still look after them after that. And this chapter contains several similar prophecies that were probably prophesied at different times. And I thought of it a bit like God shouting, giving the same story in different ways at different times. And I'm not going to read through the whole chapter because it's quite long. But here we go. Uh, the first few verses are continuing the theme from the previous chapter, which is Isaiah prophesying about how evil and awful the people were in Jerusalem. Woe to those who make unjust laws, to those who issue oppressive decrees to deprive the poor of their rights and withhold justice from the oppressed of my people, making widows their prey and robbing the fatherless. What will you do on the day of reckoning when disaster comes from afar? To whom will you run for help? Where will you leave your riches? Nothing will remain but to cringe among the captives or fall among the slain. And the next line is repeated from the previous chapter. Yet for all this, his anger is not turned away, 
His hand is still upraised. And then God speaks and he says, Woe to the Assyrian, that's King Sennacherib, the rod of my anger in whose hand is the club of my wrath. I send him against a godless nation, that's Judah. I dispatch him against a people who anger me to seize, loot, and snatch plunder and to trample them down like mud in the streets. But this is not what he intends. This is not what he has in mind. His purpose is to destroy, to put an end to many nations. Are not all my commanders all kings, he says? Has not Kalno fared like Karshemish? Is not Hamath like Arpad and Samaria like Damascus? Those are all kingdoms that have been demolished by Assyria. As my hand seized the kingdoms of the idols, kingdoms whose images excelled those of Jerusalem and Samaria, shall I not deal with Jerusalem and her images as I dealt with Samaria and her idols? And then Isaiah says, when the Lord has finished his work against Mount Zion and Jerusalem, he will say, I will punish the king of Assyria for the willful pride of his heart and the haughty look in his eyes. For he says, and again this is the king of Assyria speaking, by the strength of my hand I've done this and by my wisdom because I have understanding. I removed the boundaries of nations. I plundered their treasures like a mighty one. I subdued their kings. As one reaches into a nest, so my hand reached for the wealth of the nations. As people gather abandoned eggs, so I gathered all the countries. Not one flapped a wing or opened its mouth to chirp. And then Isaiah prophesies, does the axe raise itself above the one who swings it? Referring to Assyria. Or the saw boast against the one who uses it? As if a rod were to wield the person who lifts it up. Or a club brandish one who is not wood. Therefore, the Lord, the Lord Almighty, will send a wasting disease upon his sturdy warriors. And if you remember, in the Bible, it does talk about 180,000 Assyrians dying overnight from that wasting disease. The angel of death, maybe a plague, wiped them out, and they withdrew. That was it, in a night, dealt with. Un under his pomp, a fire will be kindled like a blazing flame. The light of Israel will become a fire their holy one, that's God, a flame. In a single day it will burn and consume his thorns and his briars. The splendor of his forests and fertile fields it will completely destroy, as when sick people waste away. And the remaining trees of his forests, that's the Assyrian army, will be so few that a child could write them down. And then looking beyond Assyria, he continues to prophesy. In that day... The remnant of Israel, the survivors of the house of Jacob, will no longer rely on him who struck them down. And this is referring to Babylon because Babylon came in judgment against Judah again later because they carried on their evil ways and took them into captivity in Babylon and left just a few behind. That's an awful thing. Where was I? Ah, him who struck them down and that's referring to uh, Nebuchadnezzar, I guess, in Babylon, who will truly rely, but will truly rely on the Lord, the Holy One of Israel. A remnant will return to Jerusalem. A remnant of Jacob will return to the mighty God. Though your people be like the sand, 
by the sea, Israel, only a remnant, will return. Destruction has been decreed, overwhelming and righteous. The Lord, the Lord Almighty, will carry out the destruction decreed upon the whole land. And here we see God as the judge and the executor of punishment as well. I'm just going to read the next couple of verses and then stop. Therefore, this is what the Lord, the Lord Almighty says, and this is the Lord speaking again. My people who live in Zion, do not be afraid of the Assyrians who beat you with a rod and lift up a club against you as Egypt did. Very soon my anger against you will end and my wrath will be directed to their destruction. As I explained, happened to them. That's serious stuff, isn't it? Quite amazing. So what am I to say? I just want to sum up. I don't want to dwell too much on that, apart from picking out some particularly important bits from it. Here we have Judah threatened by Assyria, then a reprieve, then exile in Babylon. Nearly wiped out in Esther, if you remember that book. We forget about that sometimes. The Jews were nearly wiped out during Esther's time. Uh, Then the remnant came back to Jerusalem, became more obedient to the law. Many of their things that Jesus railed against were put into their books of the law in those days. And then, moving on, we we come to salvation in Jesus through that remnant. And then final judgment day. But it's by God's amazing wisdom that that happened. Would we have done it that way? (laughs) Would you have picked that way of dealing with Judah? Don't think so. But we see God as the righteous, all-wise judge. And I think we just need to remind ourselves of a couple of things about God. As Dave said so brilliantly this morning, God made us, or was it someone else who said it? Anyway, we said, God made us and owns us, and he has the right to decide our future as individuals, as a church. And he is good and right to his very core. There is no badness in him at all. And he's so wise. He knows all. And therefore his decisions are just unimaginably the best. So good, so right. And he has the power to carry out his rewards and punishments on people. So just reminding you of that. And therefore, when we do things that are wrong, or when we do things that are really right and pleasing to God, we get our just desserts. He repays us just right for what we've done or how we are. For him, there are no favorites. He is fair to all in his blessings and his um, punishments. The Bible is full of God as a judge. Anybody who's read it over the years will be well aware of that. And actually, the New Testament's got even more about it than the Old Testament. That stuff that I just read earlier is quite powerful stuff, isn't it? But in the New Testament, Jesus himself is the main presenter of arguments about judgment, and he talks about final judgment. In fact, in the book that I showed you just now, he talked about um, final judgment day overshadowing everything that is in the New Testament. It's in the background the whole time, that day when Jesus will come back and his glory will shine and he will judge. And it just shows that we need to get right with God, doesn't it? So need to get right with him. 
as uh, John Packer in the book said, he said a couple of really lovely things. I just want to read out a couple of them before leading on to a particularly important point that I want to get across. Packer said, would a God who did not care about the difference between good and bad be an admirable being? Wouldn't be really, would he? If he didn't really care about good and bad, we wouldn't really have much respect for him, would we? Not really. And here's an amazing thing he said. The final proof that God is a perfect moral being is that he cares about wrong and right. And it's the fact that he's committed himself to judge the world. The fact that he is going to judge the world just proves that he is the ultimate good moral person. Because if he didn't judge for the things that people have done wrong, people would be getting away with all sorts, wouldn't they? And amazingly, as C.S. Lewis put it once in the book that he wrote, one day all wrongs will be put right. That's a good thought to ponder upon. Everything that's happened to you that's been bad, somehow you'll look at it and go, oh, okay, I can take it from you, Lord. That's okay. And in a way, the doctrine about final judgment is not about scaring people into the kingdom. As people who are scared into the kingdom just conform, really, don't they? Just want to try to be good. No, the main reason for final judgment is that it reveals God's moral character and gives a moral significance to living for us, going through life. Just think about it. Um, as a, actually a man called Leon Morris wrote a really good little paragraph that I read, but it's too long to read out. But he said things like, at the final judgment, justice will finally triumph and will be seen to triumph. And dignity in the humblest actions that we take will be shown. And calmness and assurance as we go through the thick of battle now will be ours because we know one day God will say, well done. One day he will judge those who oppressed us maybe or whatever it was. So whatever we're going through, you and I, whatever spiritual battles, whatever battles with the world, whatever things that really hurt us, one day those will be put right and we will be vindicated. We don't have to try and vindicate ourselves. It gives a meaning to life, doesn't it? And it just shows the triumph of good and of God over everything. Those are things to ponder. Um, and I've really enjoyed pondering it myself as I've been preparing for it. But now I want to move on to the final judgment. And sometimes it surprises us when we find it, but Jesus himself is the judge. He's the savior and he's the judge on the throne. And uh, other words from the book. Jesus stands at the end of life's road for everyone, without exception. There he is waiting for us to come before him. Everybody in their grave will rise and be judged, and be judged perfectly, because he's good. 
There's a verse in 2 Corinthians 5.10 which talks about this. I'm not suggesting turning to it. I'm going to suggest you turn to a couple of other ones a bit later on. Uh, 2 Corinthians 5.10. Just a simple verse. For we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ. And the Amplified Version of the Bible, version of the Bible says, to be revealed as we are, like our hearts in full view to God, so that he sees our nature, what we're like, all the things that are hidden away from him, to receive what is due to us for the things that we've done, good or bad. So, Jesus will judge and see and know us completely. And he is the main authority, actually, in the New Testament. He's the one who talks about the the final judgment the most. And I'm now going to invite you to have a look at a passage that you're probably very familiar with, that we've had read out in church in the last months, which is in Matthew chapter 25, and it's on page 995 in the church Bibles. And I'm not going to read the whole thing because it's quite long. It's been read out quite recently. And if I read it right through, you'd say, well, there's lots of repetition in there, which there is. So I'm going to read out some of it and then move on a little bit. So here we go. Are you there? Page 995. Right, Matthew 25, verse 31 to 46. I'm going to invite you to look at, which is entitled The Sheep and the Goats. When the Son of Man comes in his glory and all the angels with him, he will sit on his glorious throne. All the nations will be gathered before him and he will separate the people one from another as a shepherd separates the sheep from the goats. He will put the sheep on his right and the goats on his left. Then the king will say to those on his right, Come, you who are blessed by my father. Take your inheritance, the kingdom prepared for you since the creation of the world. For I was hungry, and you gave me something to eat. And I was thirsty, and you gave me something to drink. And I was a stranger, and you invited me in. I needed clothes, and you clothed me. I was sick, and you looked after me. I was in prison, and you came to visit me. Then the righteous will answer him, Lord, when did we see you hungry and give you fee- and feed you? And so on. That's where I'm going to not say all of those. And the king will reply, Truly, I tell you, whatever you did for one of these least of these brothers of mine and sisters of mine, you did for me. Then he will say to those on his left, Depart from me, you who are cursed, into the eternal fire prepared for the devil and his angels. For when I was hungry, you gave me nothing to eat. And he goes through the whole thing again. And then in verse 44, they answer, Lord, when did we see you hungry or thirsty, etc.? And he will reply, Truly, I tell you, whatever you did not do for one of the least of these, you did not do for me. Now, you've probably read that loads of times in the past. I'm getting hot, so I'm going to take this off. And um, you've probably had discussions about these verses. Anybody nodding? Probably people wondering about it, about works and, and so on. And, uh, and I, I've explained them to people and talked about them, but never really understood something I saw yesterday, which is ridiculous. 
I think God revealed to me something just to sort of clarify things for me, and I'm going to offer it to you and see what you think about it. It is this. The sheep on the right are those who God says go away to glory, whatever whatever words he uses, because I'm pleased with what you did. And he says, whatever you did, even if it was only one little thing, whatever you did, you did it for me. And I'm pleased about that, that you did. Well done. You can have eternal life. Is that true? That's what it says in there. Whatever you did for for the least of these. Okay, got that one? What about the other one, the next one? The goats, unbelievers on his left. And I have to say that some other writers and commentators, people that we really respect, have different views on this. The um, NIV Study Bible says there are two main differences of opinion about this passage. And David Pawson, who people know, yes, he reckons that it's talking to Christians left and right, which is interesting. But J.I. Packer, who I respect, David Pawson I respect, but I, I, I'm going with J.I. Packer on this one. <laughs> um, uh, he, he says that it's unbelievers. And let me t- just remind you what it says. To the unbelievers, the goats, Jesus says, whatever you did not do for the least of these, my brothers and sisters, you did not, for, not do for me. So even if that person did 99 amazing things, but there was one thing they didn't do, then you didn't do it for me. And what does that mean? Eternal damnation. Why? Because those people didn't have a heart for God. They weren't motivated. It. The only way that they would be acceptable to God would be if they kept the whole law and did every single thing right. And you know, and I know, that that's impossible. That's the whole reason Jesus came. Because we couldn't do it. Romans 8 says, um, what the law was powerless to do, in that it was weakened by the sinful nature, God did. So without Jesus, nobody can keep all of those, do all of those good things that would be required for them to move across to the right-hand side and be blessed eternally. That's an amazing thought, isn't it? So what about the works that are in there? wonder what you're thinking. It occurred to me yesterday, as I was was trying to figure this out, that the final judgment is of our works. Jesus is judging our works. But the final judgment is not on us based on our works. Does that make sense? I'm going to explain it a bit more. There are other verses that help with this. And uh, I've written underneath the way I said it there, really? Can that be true? Well, Ephesians 2, verse 8. You can look at it if you like. Uh, It's on page 1174. Just to remind us of something that we really know. Page 1174, Ephesians 2, verses 8 to 10. And it says, this is Paul writing to the people who lived in Ephesus. 
For it is by grace you have been saved, through faith. And this is not from yourselves, it is the gift of God. So even the faith to believe is God's gift to us. But it says, not by works, so that no one can boast. Faith alone saves. For we are God's handiwork created in Christ Jesus to do good works, which God prepared in advance for us to do. So we glorify him by our works after that, motivated by our faith. How about that one? And here is another one. John 5, verse 24, page 1069, which is very short. You don't need to turn to it if you like, but it's just a very simple reminder of what faith is, what salvation is. Very truly, Jesus said, and he was talking to the Jewish leaders actually, whoever hears my word and believes him who sent me has eternal life and will not be judged, but has crossed over from death to life. That's it, faith alone. So it's not by works. And uh, I want to give you another text which kind of proves this one, and it's in Revelation, right near the end, chapter 20. And that is on page 1249. It's a little bit longer, so uh, you might like to look at it. It's about the great white throne, page 1249, which says... Then I saw a great white throne and him who was seated on it. The earth and the heavens fled from his presence and there was no place for them. And I saw the dead, great and small, that's us, standing before the throne and books were opened. Another book was opened, which is the book of life. The dead were judged according to what they had done as recorded in the books. The sea gave up the dead that were in it and death and Hades gave up the dead that were in them. And everyone was judged according to what they had done. Then death and Hades were thrown into the lake of fire. The lake of fire is the second death. And those whose names were not found written in the book of life were thrown into the lake of fire. And in that book of life are the names of everyone who has trusted in Jesus for their, sa their salvation. Crossed over from death to life. Saved from that lake of fire. So there is a book that, uh, that if you are a believer in Jesus, your name is written there. And if you're not yet a believer here today, or you're listening online and you're not yet sure of that, that's the truth of it. That's the fact. And in a way, you need to get right with God because that awaits. But it's a good thing that it awaits because it just puts everything right, as I said. And then one final verse I'm going to give to you just to persuade you of this, which is in 1 Corinthians 3, uh, 12 to 15, which is on page 1146. Page 1146, 1 Corinthians 3, 12 to 15, which says, if anyone builds on this foundation using gold, silver, costly stones, wood, hay, or straw. Their work will be shown for what it is, because the day will bring it to light. It will be revealed with fire, and the fire will test the quality of each person's work. If what has been built survives, the builder receives a reward. If it's burned up, the builder will suffer loss, yet will be saved, even though only as one escaping through the flames. And this is referring to Christians. 
not referring to non-Christians. So, if we don't do much, we will escape as if through fire as we just managed to get into heaven. That's the implication of those verses. Well, I'm going to leave it there uh, and let you ponder that. I'm not um, just thinking, how do I go from this? And now I'm not, sorry, I'm not going to leave. I've got one more, one more thing. Yeah, I'm going to leave that there. Don't, don't go up, I've got one more thing. Sorry, Rob. Yeah. I'm going to leave that there and just deal with one more thing, which is linked to this, which um, stunned me when I thought about it. I've been reading through the Psalms uh, for the beginning of the year, through the Bible in a year, and I've come to a couple of Psalms that said that God hates wicked people. And I've read those lots of times, and I've gone doesn't really mean hates. But this time I stopped and I said, what does it really mean that God hates evildoers and the wicked? Let me just read out two of the verses that say that. Psalm, I'm not going to ask you to turn to them, they're quite short. Psalm 5, verses 4 to 6. For you are not a God who is pleased with wickedness. With you, evil people are not welcome. The arrogant cannot stand in your presence. You hate all who do wrong. You destroy those who tell lies. The bloodthirsty and deceitful you, Lord, detest. Those are strong words. Not sure how I passed over those in the past and didn't say what. And then a little bit further on, Psalm 11, 5. The Lord examines the righteous, but the wicked, those who love violence, he hates with a passion. Can't really get over those words, can you? They say what they say. So I began to do a little search. I looked online to try and find someone who could explain that for me and help me out of my difficulty thinking that God hates people. And I found three or four really good talks, but none of those got to it. They didn't deal with it. And I got to the end. I thought, no, that's not really dealt with it. Somehow they've they failed to address this obvious thing that God seems to hate some people. And, uh, and then I, I found a podcast by a man called John Piper, who quite a lot of people know. And it was a verse that actually, I think, Dave, you, you actually, it wasn't a verse, sorry. It's, it's something you said earlier. Or, or was it you, Rob? I'm not sure. Anyway, someone said, God loves the sinner but hates the sin. We all say that, don't we? God loves the sinner, but he hates the sin. How do you reconcile it with those two verses in Psalms when you, hear, when you say that? Are you not conning yourself or somebody? What's going on? It's just not right. And, and I listened to a nine-minute talk by John Piper on this, and he explained it brilliantly, and it's gobsmacking. It really is, if it's true, if he's right. And it is this that God is able to love and hate people at the same time because there are two types of love and hate in a way in this. Has anybody come across this idea before? Let me just present it to you and see what you think. We can talk about it over, over a drink afterwards. Two types. The first type of... Well... Where is it here? Right, the first type of hate that God has is an intense loathing for sin. He will not abide it. When he was in the tabernacle on the earth, he was in the Holy of Holies, 
And anybody who went in there with an ounce of unrighteousness would be smote dead straight away, immediately. They had a rope attached to them in case that happened and they could be pulled out again. Um, so he hates that. And if he sees a person, and he sees a person completely who is full of evil inclinations, he hates that in them. He doesn't say, I love you, but I hate what's in you. He says, no, that's a, you're a hateful, hate-filled person. I loathe. We say God loathes people. I don't want to say it like that. But his hatred for sin is so powerful that he feels that way about people who are full of it. But there's a different type of hatred, which is an intention to destroy because of the hatred. But God's not like that. He hates the sin. So he looks at a person and says, I hate what you are. I hate everything about you because you're so full of sin. And you know, arguably, logically, that could be for anybody who doesn't follow Jesus, which is a, an awful thing to say, so I'm not going to go that far. But there's a sort of implication. And so what about love? Well, love, two types of love. One that talks about seeing the quality in a person that is admirable and loving that person because of those admirable qualities. And the other, which is having a good intention for that person out of the love. Wanting to bless and do wonderful things for that person. And that is what John Piper reckons that God is like. He has an intense loathing for what he sees in people that is so strong that he cannot abide being with them. And yet he has an intense love for people that caused him to send his son to die for them. And in a way, if we get hold of that, the stunning thought about it is that God was prepared to send his son to die for people who are reprehensible to him because he loves us so much. And people who get hold of that and respond are then saved to the uttermost. And when he looks at us, we are holy and free from blemish. It says that so many places in the Bible. When he looks at us, we are beautiful and lovely and lovable, even our, despite our past tendencies. And it makes me want to not sin because I don't want him to look at me and see that blemish and go, Ugh, no, I just, it's stirring in me. And I just pray that if, if this strikes a chord with you, that it stirs you to say no to sin and not treat God as a good daddy who's in heaven and loves us all anyway, because he's a God who judges. Uh, there we are. It's a thought, isn't it? And I, I've got the, the, the link to the podcast, which I'll put on the Facebook, uh, sorry, the WhatsApp fellowship group, so you can listen to it yourselves if you want to, if you want to follow up on this. And I just want to pray, and I, I briefed Dave that there might be something to follow up with afterwards, but Maybe because of time we should leave it. Lord God, thank you for revealing mysteries to us as we look in your word. Thank you for the wisdom that you've given writers of books to ponder these things and present them in ways that we can learn from. Thank you for J.I. Packer and his book, Knowing God, that helped me a lot in this. Uh, Lord, we want to be close to you. We don't want to... 
disappoint you. We don't want to uh, spoil things that you love. We want to be free and um, holy in your sight, and we're so grateful what, for what you've done, Lord Jesus, for us. Help us to be strong and stay with you. Help us to tell people about your love, Lord, so they're not under the threat of that judgment that is there awaiting for us at the end. Oh, Lord, have mercy on us, please. Help us to glorify you and to stay close to you and to draw others close to you. Please, Lord, help us. Amen.